is supported by Filling the Well, a new podcast from Arts Midwest created to nourish, provoke, and inspire artists and arts leaders. In this five-part series, hear from creative changemakers as they share their takes on how to shift power dynamics, avoid burnout, build authentic community, share resources, and advocate for support. With each episode, you'll find links to explore these ideas further and act in your community. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or check out artsmidwest.org slash filling the well. Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Rhea with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, my guest is Hilary Doe, who is the Chief Strategy Officer of Nation Builder. And we are talking today about how we can build and activate art networks on behalf of our nonprofits. So welcome, Hilary. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being here. So before we jump into our topic for the day, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey in the nonprofit world? Yes, I'm so happy to be here because sort of a lifelong nonprofiter, despite my <laughs> my title and role. So my background's actually in the nonprofit space. I started and ran for a long time an organization called um, the Roosevelt Institute, and we built a network of think tanks across the country. You might have run into it if you have a college kid. They very well have a might have a Roosevelt chapter um, at their university. And that was really sort of the formative kind of professional experience. And it was incredible because I didn't realize at the time how lucky I was until later, but I really got to bear witness to an organization that where people didn't just donate, but they were really identified with this place. They were Roosevelters. They like wore our mission emblazoned on their t-shirts. Like it was a really like a deep connection and they were responsible for our growth and our scale. And I'm so proud to say because of that commitment of our members, that network grew to be the largest policy organization in the country, um, went on to win the MacArthur um, Genius Award for Creative and Effective Institutions. It was just like a really incredible kind of like flash in the pan moment that sent me on a quest to really figure out how to capture that magic in a bottle. Sort of what were we doing that so many of my colleagues at other nonprofits had really struggled to do? How do you get people to not just give one time, but like really be committed for the long term? What was that? The source of that kind of magic. And ever since I've been sort of on a quest pursuing it. So I um, went into academic spaces for a beat. I was in a PhD program at Princeton studying political movements and movements more broadly. Like why do people join them and stay committed and stay loyal for the long term? Like what's that source of that identification? And then landed in a tech company where we were really trying to build tools that would help nonprofit organizations do that as effectively as possible, really borrow from other spaces, from brand spaces and political spaces, anything that worked to really build deep identification and long-term kind of communities of support. More personally, I'm from Michigan originally, spent most of my professional life in New York actually, but recently moved back. So I'm calling you today from Detroit. We bought a big old house in Detroit. And as some of you may have experienced that the last however many years, starting over, <laughs> kind of building it back to its former glory. So it's snowy and cold here and in my attic. So yeah, that's where I'm at. Cool. So the notion of movement building obviously is nothing new, but I think social media certainly has made it perhaps easier than ever to think about how to build movements and activate people. Can you tell us a few examples that you've seen, aside from the Roosevelt example, of ways in which nonprofits have been able to build networks on behalf of their organizations? Yeah, definitely. Examples, I think, that are all digital. 
really successful, for example, alumni communities that have grown chapter-based that are like really highly engaged and highly energized, but are all digital. There are other examples. Obviously, you, you all have know all kinds of political movements that have gone all digital, but some that are hyper-local as well that use this model really effectively. I'm on the board of an organization based here in Michigan called Voters Not Politicians that built a really effective network across the state, um, originally around a ballot initiative, but now have a whole C3 network. And they're a great example of really balancing this sort of the chaos versus control that's required to pull off a powerful network effectively. What I mean by that is you really want to build an engaged community that's sort of committed for the long term, that's really high impact. You have to create a structure for them. You have to equip those folks effectively, all kinds of sort of tips we can share there. But you also have to let them be free a little bit, like really give them leadership and let them run with it. Even if they make small changes to your messaging or what have you, the gift on the other side is that they're authentically speaking about what you're doing, bringing their friends into the fold. They're your best advocate advocates, recruiters, fundraisers in the world. And so voter not politicians pulled off a really incredible win as a result of building that community of supporters who created the momentum for their movement and continued it all on their own, really went for it and has continued for a long time. They won a big effort to ungerryman the state of Michigan, and that has inspired a bunch of other states to take on a similar effort and are now doing work around, you know, reversing some voter suppression initiatives and things like that, all really driven by that community of support they built. So it's another great example if folks want to look them up. All right. So before we dig into the tips that you have for us, I think we can all think about our own lives and instances in which we're part of networks that feel a little bit lackluster and other networks that we feel are really vibrant that we're really excited about. So can you draw out for us a couple of the tips and tricks around like what makes a good vibrant network versus a network that sort of... Yeah, totally. Because yes, we have all had both of those experiences. I think that the heart of it actually starts with who forms your network to begin with and who drives it, who leads it. The number one killer of a networked effort is to be too controlling and too hierarchical. So basically, if you create a membership program and it's really strict and there's like two different levels and like you're the only one that knows what they mean and you like put them out in the world and people can join them or not, the chances that that flourishes and builds into something that has its own momentum are pretty small. You're just really creating a couple of donation levels or something. What I would suggest is the place to start is to really find your 5%. So this is a bit of trite perhaps at this point, but it's well known and understood that about 5% of people in your database will control 100% of your word of mouth. They're the people that are super supporters. They're going to recruit for you. And it's a real shame to see so many organizations have those really engaged 5%, but let their highest value be just one donation or giving once a year or answering an email. They're doing everything that you ask of them, but you're really only asking them to take one action with you as opposed to asking them to take on leadership and bring their friends into the fold. If they're a great donor in your 5%, they're an even better fundraiser. They're not just great at signing a petition. They're a much better recruiter. They're much better than you'll be, <laughs> than any organization could be. Like People don't answer your mass emails from your organization's moniker in the same way that they do a friend's call to participate. And again, all this stuff is perhaps well known, but I actually think it's really hard to start living in practice because I'm sure you talk about this a lot, but I think it's partly rooted in what all of us probably have struggled with in the nonprofit space as it relates to fundraising. The idea that you're making an ask and it feels a little bit vulnerable and scary. The same thing can be true with engaging that 5%. You like don't want to mess it up. 
sometimes. I think we don't want to reach out to them and ask too much. And maybe we're encroaching on their lives. We're sort of worried about what we can ask of that crew. And the reality is the more that we ask them to take on leadership, the more loyal they'll be, the higher their donor LTV will be over the long term as an individual, and the more new donors we'll meet because it's just the most effective way to grow the pool of people that want to engage with your organization and to get beyond one-time activism and into deep network building. It's like the most effective thing you can do. Ask those 5% to do more. Tell them that you need them. It's an offer, not an ask, really. It's an offer and an invitation to participate in the incredible thing that you're doing. And they're really hungry for it, I'm sure. Like we've seen more and more folks in their professional lives really wanting to supplement what they're already doing with 40 hours a week with real deep purpose that they believe in and be associated with that. And taking on like leadership in your organization can really scratch that itch for them. So you're really offering them an opportunity. Yeah. So I'd love to dig into that because in my practice, I talk a lot about the ways in which we partner with donors and help them develop their own sense of urgency, self, self-actualization via your cause. I'm wondering, is there a way that we know how to engage those people or who those people are? Or let me just start there with two questions. What I'm really trying to drive out here is how do we find those people? How do we know who those 5% people are? Totally. It depends on your current infrastructure, but it's one of the reasons that it's really critical to have infrastructure that all talks to each other. And in this era, there's no excuse not to. What I mean by that is a lot of us set up kind of siloed structures to start. Like we have a separate system for sending our email and a separate system for donor management and a separate system for we're using Twitter or whatever it is. And it's really hard to figure out if the same person that retweeted you gave you $20 last week is the same person that opened your email. You know what I mean? That can be really difficult. And if you have a system like that, it is really hard to find your 5% because what you're looking for generally is someone who has taken the asks you've made of them consistently. And ideally someone who's taken diverse actions. So not just donations. And now if you've only asked them to donate, you'll have to stick with that information. But ideally the 5%, the, the tell is that they're doing multiple different kinds of actions with you and they're engaging consistently. So you want to find the people who both, like that Venn diagram, who both open your emails regularly and are donating regularly and are engaging with you on social channels, for example, if those are the primary ways you're engaging your community. And like I said, in this era, there are affordable solutions that integrate everything that make this much, much simpler than it will be if you have to basically print all your lists and kind of compare them side by side. But even if that was the hard work you needed to do, it's worth it. Because when you find that cohort of folks who are consistently showing up for you, the next step I'd suggest is asking them how they want to participate, telling them you need their support, that you want them on your team, because really that's how we can think about them, right? As team members, not just donors and ask them how they'd like to engage. Cause people usually are pretty forthcoming about that and often really, really eager to your point to help. So I don't know if that's sufficient, but I really do think about that as the place to start. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because I think so often in the nonprofit space, we are very one-sided about things and we're constantly pitching things out as opposed to engaging people in a conversation. And I also just to plug this in, I think there is an opportunity around storytelling here. People like to tell their own stories. So by creating a space for them to connect via their own stories and asking them why they care about your particular thing will really sort of cement that relationship. Totally. Just one more thing that you made me think of. We are so much better at this in person than we are digitally. And there aren't different rules 
digitally. People who are really incredible at digital engagement make their digital engagement very human. So I say that because if you were in a room, like bumping into your supporters, you would ask them the exact question we just talked about. You'd say, oh my goodness, you seem amazing. I can tell how much you care about this. I'd love you to help. Like, how would you like to be engaged? It's very natural for us in conversation, but digitally that sort of humanity often gets stripped away and we're just making asks <laughs> that we've like pre-created instead of listening because we don't really listen as well digitally. Another example of this is medium. So I think sometimes we forget to mix our medium and the organizations that I've had the privilege to get to bear witness to around the world who've done this really, really well are mixing their, their medium all the time. So for example, how often are you sending mass emails? And then there's a certain set of people on your email list who just aren't engaging with those. If it was just your friend and you were emailing them and they literally never opened your email, you continuing to email them every week is a bit weird. <laughs> it's like, it starts to get a little odd. You know what I mean? You're doing something strange. You might, if you care about them, not never speak to them again, but you might text them or something and say, Hey, maybe you didn't get my email. I'm worried about you. Whatever it is. That's really natural again in like one-to-one -one interaction, but we don't do that as well digitally. And I think really developing your ability to mix your medium is critical in terms of increasing the humanness of your connection and your ability to reach those people who might really care about you, but just aren't email people. Um, so that's another important ask you can make of your supporters. Like, how do you want to hang out? How do you want me to talk to you? I want to go back to something that you said, which is the tension between control and freedom. And I think I'm also involved in some network building stuff on the side. And I think the challenge here for me and for my own personal edification, how do you know what that right balance is between creating the containers and sort of having control and then also letting the network go? Because one of the challenges that I personally experienced is when you're asking too much of the network, nothing really happens. But on the other hand, you want to have other people feel ownership over the network. So how do we balance that? Totally. Yeah. Everybody in your network won't end up being the one that creates some incredible new program for you and is out in the world making this the center of their universe. But some people will. And what you want to do is allow it to flourish when it's there and not sort of step on it before the, those flowers can grow. So what I often tell people is that when we're sort of embarking on a network effort, it's important to start with that 5%, find those people who are really, really excited, ask them how they would like to participate, what kinds of programming they would like. They'll always be better at figuring out what your structure could, should be than you would be by yourself guessing what they might like. So let them kind of imbue your initial seed of a network with some of their ideas. And then create an initial structure for the organization to hang on. So usually you want to make a site or something like that that has messaging for people. But I would think about it always as instead of the hard building that we all have to stand in, I think about it more as equipping your people, like build resources that are useful to equip them to go out in the world on in your behalf. So for example, instead of one static site, it can be really useful to give chapter leaders who are in your 5% the tools to build their own. Instead of just making events that you're inviting them to give people the ability to create user submitted events, instead of just telling them that we're going to have a donation drive on this day, please share the email I wrote with your friends. You can give them the ability to create personal fundraising pages. Basically, the distinction here is always, I'm creating a structure and I'm equipping you. I'm not going to send you out on an adventure on my behalf. Don't send your people into the woods with bad gear, but give them great gear that they can lean into and imbue with their own personal touch. And that makes for a really great balance between that kind of control and sufficient creativity for folks to see themselves as leaders and really want to go out in the world on your behalf. I know there's a lot of nuance there. 
But I really think we start with that seed of folks that can tell you what they want the initial structure to be, create that structure. And then every resource you create, think about how you're using it to equip your crew instead of creating something that you're dictating to folks. That can be a really beautiful place to start. Okay, I'm going to ask the million-dollar question here. Let's talk about boards, because your board, in theory, should be your 5%. They should be your crew, your ambassadors, people going out in the world. On the other hand, of course, I talk to nonprofit executive directors all the time who are frustrated that their board really isn't doing that or isn't going out, isn't bringing their network. So talk to me a little bit about how we might solve for that problem, because it sounds like the people who are really motivated are kind of intrinsically motivated by the work. And if we have board members who either are unwilling or unable or not equipped to do it, how do we solve for that and or is there a point at which we decide that like, maybe you're not on the 5% team? <laughs> yeah, I think that's totally right. I having, like many of us have, I'm sure had to manage boards over time. Like I think it's important to reflect once in a while, the group that you've got and figure out sort of which archetype each of them is. It's the case that some people are not going to be shouting about you from the rooftops going out in the world, but they may be making sizable contributions or maybe they're a great mentor to you. There's reasons they can be on the team, I guess, suppose without being like out in the world as one of your 5%. But I also think it's important to be honest <laughs> about that once in a while and assess what archetype everyone is and who's pulling weight and who's not. I will say not just for your board, but much more broadly and publicly for out in the world. A lot of my thinking about networks is informed, honestly, by Susan Fisk's work for people who know her. She wrote about the human motivation, why humans are motivated to do anything that we're motivated to do. She thinks a lot about it in the context of politics and movements. But in those sort of five principles, the number one reason that we do anything is for belonging. We really want to belong. We want to be in a group with each other. And then everything else is in service of that. But one of the other five is around kind of competitiveness. Like we have this built-in like desire to have fun, healthy competition with each other. And we can stoke that in people who have gotten a little bit tired of being on our board or being in our supporter group or whatever. It really can work. So just little things like introducing leaderboards, for example, can be a really cool way to remind everybody what you is important to you and what your goals are and externalize those for the group to be able to see who's recruited the most people this year, sort of who's responsible for bringing in XYZ dollars, that kind of thing. And that's important also as it relates to what we track. I think a lot of times we track how many total dollars raised, for example, it's just as critical to know how those dollars came in the door and from whom, because that will expose that maybe your board members aren't sure 5%. When you really look at who's responsible for recruiting and new members, new activity, and kind of evaluate that, you might find a whole new 5%. A group of people who are actually out there hustling, like doing real work for you all the time, who aren't yet necessarily on that level yet. And you might want to elevate one of them into that group to really stimulate more engagement on that board and compare what they've been able to produce to what everybody else is doing in a, in a really healthy, friendly way, but a way that can be really motivating. And I love what you said, and I think it can't be underscored enough, which is have the conversation. Ask people what they are willing and interested in doing. Don't assume. You know what happens when you assume. But if you actually start the conversation and ask people what it is they want to be doing, they're much more likely to actually do it. But tell me this, Hillary. You said something about 
letting a thousand flowers grow. I'm wondering how we balance that out between the limited amount of time and energy that we have as executive directors. Because I certainly have had the experience of board members coming up with some brilliant idea that (laughs) really was not that helpful or was not going to be the best use of our resources. Certain things like, we're going to have like a gene sale. And I was like, I don't see how that's a value add. So Talk to us about how we balance the encouraging of ideas without becoming too diluted and running around a million different directions. Yes. I actually think we've bounced around a little bit because what we're really talking about is how to build really high impact communities. So that can take the form of just an existing supporter base or great donors, but it can also take this more evolved form of a network, which is where we started, like really building networks of folks that are engaged in deep ways with you. And a common feature of a network is like a chapter-based structure because it really can be a great container to, to facilitate that letting all flowers bloom without it landing squarely in your lap as an executive director. So for example, it may be trickier with a board member, but I've actually seen this work with a board member as well. When somebody has some great idea, I think you can be in the context of having a network really, really honest and say, hey, we can't do that in the central office. Like in HQ kind of land, we have five people and we're strapped and like, these are the priorities, but I would love to see if that works. I'd love you to basically beta test that for us in the world. And you can do that in chapter context. So you live in New York, you're part of the New York chapter, or you're interested in education, you're in our education bucket or whatever. Get that crew of folks in your chapter or in your area of interest to help you and see if you all can pull it off. And then what you have is the ability to A-B test a million different messages and a bunch of different ideas in different parts of the country. And you can really listen better than you're able to do when you're just sending out messages. So you know if the gene sale was a smashing success or if not, so you can figure out you're not spending your resources on it initially. You're letting people test on your behalf though. And once in a while, people will do something magical and you see it and it's your messaging, but it's a little different. And you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I never thought of that. It's perfect. It's really resonating. And you can share it in the best case with every other chapter so that you're really elevating, leveling up as a result of a million Petri dishes, kind of trying different things that aren't sapping your your resources. On that note, are we too worried about brand fidelity? Because I feel like there is also with this million flowers blooming idea that like you might have things that are kind of off brand or like off message. And at the same time, there is something about iterating and, and evolving. So how do we deal with totally. that tension? It's so funny that you mentioned that because I honestly think it's the biggest fear people have. And it's generally the least worrisome. So when people embark on this network model, I think often we're really excited at the beginning. We kind of like get the concept and then the rubber hits the road. You make a website template for your people, but then they start filling in their own user submitted events or their own ideas, or people take here, your mission statement kind of repeat it. It's a little bit different, (laughs) you know, whatever. And it can feel really scary because this is your baby. We can be really specific about what we want it to be. I think that in all my experience doing this, and honestly, hundreds and hundreds of networks now over the years have taken on this effort. There has been one example I can think of where things went a little bit rogue. And in that case, it wasn't a big deal. It was like something went rogue. Isn't that funny? Let's like recommit. And like, we got everybody back on track. It just wasn't dramatic. People who join and spend their life hours on something are doing it because they really believe. And if you've done a good job articulating what you're about and your mission for them, people are doing the best that they can to serve that truly. Like nobody has time to join just to be difficult. (laughs) You know, that's like not what you could just troll people on the internet. I mean, there are easier ways to be difficult than joining a network. So generally isn't a problem, but our fear about it 
can so quickly squash all the magic that could have come out. We can so quickly like worry about that, that we don't give people any tools at all, that we do not equip anybody. And we say, um, I'll write the email and you just share forward it to folks. There's just a way to completely strip away the authenticity, that human voice to remove the chance that we had to get a bunch of cool AB tests on things, to listen. And instead to say, that feels too scary. I'm just going to talk. Forget listening. I'm just going to talk. That's truly the risk as opposed to some fear about a little rev on our, our talking points. I love that. And I think you're right. I think we may overstate the case of like brand fidelity. We're not Coca-Cola here, people. Tactically, what does it look like for us to continue to manage and nurture this network? Like, does it look like weekly meetings? Does it look, I mean, I know it probably differs from network to network, but can you give us some general ideas about like, what does it mean to, I call it the care and feeding of a network. We can't sort of leave them alone forever. There's no reason for them to be associated with you. The way this works most beautifully is that folks are doing things in their say chapter or whatever, their local group, and then are also feeding that up centrally. So that they're getting infused all the time by your good thinking, by your aggregation of all the good information. And they're getting the identification with the people they see most often or talk to most often digitally or what have you. So I really do think it's an infrastructure question that's like not a super sexy answer because how often you speak to them does vary. It really depends on how much good leadership you have in the network and how much you can really give things over and they just happen. So that hopefully will, the burden of human time will go down over time because more and more people in your network are taking on leadership. The obligation though that we have is to really create good infrastructure from the beginning to allow this to flourish. If all the people who you supposedly imbued with leadership really just are putting stuff they did into a Google Doc once a month, you aren't able to listen well. You aren't able to hear whether they actually have needs that you aren't fulfilling. (laughs) Like you guys need to be in like real relationship. And I think that can come from setting up good infrastructure. So I would start with infrastructure that's integrated, try to get away from really siloed infrastructure where everything's happening in different places, try to get into a place where it's pretty integrated. I would try to make sure that when you're creating, equipping your folks with stuff, you aren't saying, Hey, go out and make a website. And then someone's on Squarespace and somebody's on Wix and everything's just, it's very difficult to hear and listen and keep track of what folks are doing in a way that you can help and scale best practices and all of that. I would really think about more of a kind of sub-nation structures, what we call it at Nation Builder. Other people call it other things where there's a master kind of HQ sitting on top and you can really use that to listen better. And I would be careful about social. What I mean by that is social is great. It's a great way to meet new people. It's a great way for your people to share about your organization and meet new folks they might not have met otherwise who aren't already on your email list. But you don't want to lose all your data and ability to engage with people by having everything happen in an environment where you don't own your data. So I would be really cautious about that, especially in a world where opinions on data privacy, for example, are changing really quickly. It feels ickier than ever to target new supporters based on like demographic targeting, like you would do on Facebook ads or something like that. So I wouldn't build a structure that's really dependent on that kind of engagement. Instead, I would think about meeting people where they are. So let people post on social, but always have a link through that comes back to a property you own where you're collecting information so that you know who's engaging with you in a real way. Wouldn't keep all your engagement if you can help it on like a Facebook group because you can't actually 
know much about those people in that context. And if you want to meet new folks, I would suggest thinking about where they are, what they care about, what they're doing, as opposed to who they are in terms of tracking them with demographic targeting on social. It's just not a best practice anymore. And it's really going to change, I would say, over the next however many years, considering what's going on in Europe and what have you. So instead, think about what kind of articles those people are reading, and then put your calls to action in those articles and media with different targeted solutions like Action Button and others. There's, There's sort of different ways to meet people based on what they want to do and engage with as opposed to who they are. So those are a couple words of caution. Yeah, I love that. So be careful about building on borrowed land. So if your Great entire strategy say. is Facebook oriented or LinkedIn oriented or Twitter oriented, that's uh, clearly a risk. And now a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Are you an accidental fundraiser? Someone who is charged with fundraising on behalf of your organization, but have received no training, little support, and no idea where to start? I'm here to help. Applications for my fundraising accelerator are open until April 13th for the May-June session. This is perfect for executive directors and development directors of organizations who want to launch a major gift strategy. Apply today so that you can become the successful fundraiser that your organization needs you to be. Applications are available at riawong.com. And we're back to the show. Last question for me. Talk to me a little bit about in-person versus online. So obviously in the age of COVID, we really have not had the ability to engage in person. I agree in general, in-person is a lot more powerful, but can you give us any thoughts, best practices around effective network building digitally and in this digital Zoom world that we're living in? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it isn't, it isn't, we didn't realize, I think, the extent to which it was a luxury before we all lived through a pandemic together, but it really is powerful when you can to create those spaces. And when we can't, I think what it's really put a a sort of magnifying glass over is the extent to which, like I was mentioning earlier, our digital communications are sometimes different completely unnecessarily than our in-person communications would be. To the extent that we can make our digital communication feel like really human, we'll do better. So I honestly do that little exercise that I sort of did accidentally earlier where I play out, well, what if this was just a friend? (laughs) I just keep emailing them into the abyss. (laughs) That seems pretty odd. Like there's no excuse for your digital communication if you apply it in a one-to-one scenario to feel really weird. And if you kind of test that a lot, you'll see dramatically different results. It's to the point where, for example, when we send text campaigns and things like that, I'll get replies that are one-to-one. Basically, people are applying to, oh, yeah, what are you wearing? Or like, how is it cocktail? People ask you questions as if you just email them because it feels really personal. That's goals. It should feel like, oh, my friends just emailed me and want to know details about the event. as opposed to getting a mass email. And so mixing your medium can really help with this. Like I mentioned, think about text, think about sending people a message on social and then linking them back to your property that you own. Think about email. You can even do calls, call time. That's really popular, obviously with political campaigns, it can be really effective in the nonprofit space as well. So it's something really useful to borrow where you can just call in and chat with folks. This is a great thing to deputize. Another great reason to build a network or at least distribute more leadership is to make digital communication more human because you can deputize people in your community, your 5%, to do some of this with you and on your behalf. So people aren't always receiving an email from the Institute for whatever, but are instead getting a call from Sue who lives down the street. And even if we can't see each other, heard that you were involved, like just got your email, whatever it is to just really make it a little bit more personal because those things as close as we can approximate in person, the more kind of loyalty we can build identification with the organization that we can build. Last thing would just be making this as fun as we can. 
our standards for being on Zoom together are getting really high because no one wants to do this anymore. People are working on Zoom all day, like having an event where we all jump on a Zoom. There's a higher bar to clear here. And so I think it's less nice to have and more need to have to think about ways to make it fun. I talked about leaderboards, but there's other kinds of gamification that we can like lean into together to make it just a little bit more interesting, different services we can use online. You guys have probably seen the boxes. You can send people and open them up and make cocktails together, just sort of ways to make our online engagements a little bit more fun, I think is really critical in this era. Yeah. It's so interesting you say that because I think On the one hand, we're more connected than we ever were. And on the other hand, we're less personally connected. So I get random texts from like, hey, Rhea, it's John. And I'm like, who's John? I don't know who you are. So I was saying when your phone says like, maybe Alice. Do you know how it's like? Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm like, who's Alice? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But the point is, I do appreciate that it's like John or Alice versus insert random name of organization that I donated to once. Totally. Yeah. But you're pointing at an important thing too. People don't want inauthenticity, you know what I mean? And you can sniff it out really easily. So this has to come from a real place. So instead of, for example, I could have said, um, instead of sending your email from the Institute for whatever, make it from Sally and make sure that your headline always says it's from Sally Sue at whatever. Those are digital tips. Those are the kinds of digital tips we were giving, I think five years ago to make sure that you have a sender and things like that. But people are beyond that. We're they're smarter than that. And we know when we get a text from maybe John mm-hmm. <laughs> or whatever, it's probably not like actually John, he's maybe not reading this. So really deputizing your people to do things on your behalf. You can tell, you can really tell like, oh, it's authentic communication. Like they're actually reaching out and want to talk to me as opposed to a mass email that's got a fake moniker. Okay. But to play devil's advocate here for a second, I also think that it's very labor intensive, right? So if you are sending out those personal emails and your friend emails back and says like, what are you wearing to the gala? Like you need to respond to that. And so how do we do that in a way that is both authentic, but also recognizes sort of the limited capacity and resources that we had? So you talked about deputizing. I'm also wondering if there's an automation aspect here that helps us to answer emails at scale. Yes, totally. Yeah. Again, it's a balance between like really great infrastructure and using tech as well as we can, but with the goal of making tech really human and actually deputizing to more humans. Both of those things I think need to be happening. So yeah, there's great tools in this area. So we can put people on, I like the concept of paths. Some people would call them ladders of engagement, but basically pre-create, spending the time in your technical infrastructure to pre-create engagement ladders is a really, really good practice and will really help you with the challenge that you're describing. And it's surprisingly hard to do. It's hard mental work, I guess is what I mean. So when you have, say I'm talking to a new customer of ours or whatever, we sit down and we say, cool, if you could have your best supporters take a given action, what would it be? They'll be able to tell you which action they want them to take. Okay. And once they do that, what's the next thing that you really want them to do? They might be able to tell you that, but if you double click on that four times, people start to go like, oh God, I don't know. I never even thought about it. (laughs) You know what I mean? We're just hoping that they open the email and maybe we get a donation once a year. But if you really go through the exercise of like build that whole ladder, what's the ideal thing that you'd have them do next? You'll eventually get to, well, I guess if they've done all that stuff, I'd like it if they fundraise for me or whatever, you know what I mean? You'll eventually get into those like sort of more difficult actions. And if you create those engagement ladders in your tech, what you can do is when people are replying to you and things like that, you can kind of automatically move them into the next best thing that you want them 
them to be doing, not just sort of a one step, which we see a lot. Like I took an action online. It took me to the next web page. just a one step, but like a deep ladder of engagement that can automatically send you a text or automatically send you an email and trigger that next layer of engagement that you've kind of pre-created. I think that's a really, really good practice. Okay. Well, let's talk about tech for a second. So one of the hot topics that we always talk about are CRM systems and nobody loves their CRM system. So I'm wondering, this might be an opportunity to talk about Nation Builder, but what solutions have you seen out there that can really help us to build that ladder of engagement in a way that isn't super labor intensive? Totally. Yeah. I could talk about Nation Builder. I don't hate my CRM and I'm at a company that's all CRM. So I guess that's the truth, but I won't go into detail on it. I think I want to leave you all with a couple sort of maybe flags to look for. Part of the reason that I came to Nation Builder and stayed, I never thought I would be like a tech executive for the last eight years. That wasn't the path. I was a nonprofit executive. But the reason I came and stayed is because I really saw the way in which they were solving problems that I really had. And that's what's kept me engaged. And a couple of the red flags I had with my previous CRM and that I still see folks have, there are other great solutions in the space, by the way, not just Nation Builder, but this is what I would look for. One, I would look for whether the goal of the CRM appears to be reporting on how you did or giving you the tools that you need to do better next month. That sounds abstract, but if you really like think about that question, is this designed to tell me just how I did, or is it designed to help me in some way do better? Their CRMs will divide themselves really quickly into two camps. And I would say strongly, I strongly, strongly believe a CRM that just tells you how you did isn't what you want. You want one that tells you how you can do better because that's what we're all in pursuit of. We were all in pursuit of like learning lessons and doing better and having a learning mindset. And a lot of CRMs really focus just on reporting. Like they're tracking lists of things that I did. They're telling me a total number of people who donate, whatever it is. They're really reflective. They're looking backwards all the time. We can do that. It's not complicated. We can count. All of us can sort of look backwards and see what has already occurred. It's much harder to find something that helps us predict, hey, these people look like your best donors. Let's engage them next month. Or, hey, this crew tends to tended to donate 20% more if you ask them on this day at this time. So let's do that. Giving you kind of tips and coaching and advice and go forward insight. That's what we should be expecting of our CRMs in this era. It's 2022 now and the bar, it has been raised. <laughs> so that's what we should be asking for that go forward approach. Another red flag I would say is CRMs that think of people too much as data. So um, they are data, obviously all our supporters, our number of supporters can be datatized or what have you, but is there ability in your CRM to see texture about like a person and how they engage with you and what they like and on all of that, that tends to come down to the integration. So how siloed it is, is a CRM like totally separate again from the handle that they are on social media, from the, whether they've opened your emails or not? Is it really siloed where you have a list of email addresses, a list of donors and a list of handles, or is it that all that's integrated and I have people in my database, people who have social media accounts and who have records of donations and who have, or haven't opened emails and have various email addresses. And they're all integrated into one profile of a human person who supports me. If it doesn't have that, and they're just pieces of data, red flag. Because you don't have the goal of just increasing your email list for no reason. You have the goal of getting more people engaged in your organization. And so that integration is really look for that, certainly. And then the third thing, I guess I would say is that a really ideal CRM allows as many people as you like to be in your operations. Part of distributing leadership will inevitably mean giving people access to different things. 
And what you want to feel confident in is you can do that without maybe giving them everything. So you, you don't want people to be able to see everything, but being able to like apportion data and share it with lots of folks, not having crazy limits on the number of admins you can have in your CRM, all those things are bad for business. Because what it means is that most people, everyone who's engaging with you in any way has information and that they can't put it into the system. And your system is only as good as the information people put into it. So if you only have two admin seats and no one can get in or everyone's sharing logins or whatever, you're not going to get good high fidelity information. It should be, everyone should have access that it's the place people live and breathe. And you should have sufficient permissions so you feel confident about being able to do that, even with someone who's running an event for you this month, but you don't want to be able to see all your previous donor activity. So those are three things I would really look for in a, in a CRM of this era in order to do everything we've described really well. All right. So I think the, the obvious next question, Hillary, is are there CRMs that do this that you have experienced? We can talk about Nation Builder. We yeah. can talk about other folks in the field yeah. that you have experienced. Yeah. Certainly Nation Builder does all those things because they've been there eight years and we've been fighting hard to make sure that it does and pouring in all those, the coaching and communication. We really center on a leader. We call ourselves leadership software. We really want to be a leadership company. So what we're trying to do is help you lead better. So the goal is not to be just backward looking, but to make next month better and the next month better after that. So we're really focused on that or I wouldn't be there. There are others though I can think of. So I would look into nonprofits often shy away from looking at things that are traditionally called advocacy software. But if you see anything that talks about allowing facilitating advocacy, I would really look at those because politics and advocacy have a lot to offer the nonprofit space in terms of these kinds of best practices. And if you lean more towards CRMs that were traditionally built for sales teams, for example, you'll struggle because they're more kind of business oriented and they're more reporting based. So that's another kind of way for you to do a search and find other folks in the space who might better serve your needs. All right. I have a question coming in from Andrea. Andrea, you want to jump in? Yes, I was just wondering, it was so interesting to hear of the Susan Fisk author about motivation and others worth noting in this, given the world we're in. Yep, for sure. So I can speak a little bit about her work because I do think it's really critical. So she talks a lot about, and I'll also mention another person to look into who most folks probably already know, but Susan Fisk's work is incredible. She really roots in, again, why people do anything, but in particular studied why people engage, identify as part of a movement or a group and are there for the long term. The primary thing, like I said, is belonging. We all want to belong, but the four others that support that belonging are the motivation to understand. So in other words, there have been incredible studies about this in recent years, where if you insert, like if one student in a group of friends knows about political information, like knows about the upcoming election and is planning to vote, it triggers this incredible information seeking behavior among their friends, where they'll all go start Googling about the the election, because we want to understand what people in our group understand and like be seen to understand. We have this desire to, as in, in service of belonging understand the same things that others do. Another is around trust that I think is really interesting and that we have this inherent desire to trust each other, but only our group who we want to belong with and sometimes not folks who we don't want to belong with, which can lead to bias and things like that. So it's really interesting to understand how that operates. And another I'd mention is the competitiveness. That's one of the five we can use to really engage folks. Like I mentioned with leaderboards and recruiting and points and things like that, because we have this natural desire to kind of be competitive a little bit, make each other better. And the final one that I think is really compelling that you can dig into and read about is people's desire to be seen as worthy of being in the group. 
it's something we're really seeking, like this idea of kind of self-worth. It's one of the five that she identified that we really want to do what's required to be seen as worthy and have that reflected back to us. And it's part of the reason people are seeking doing more purpose-driven work, certainly. And it's also part of what we can offer back to folks. Like you did enough, like that was great. And I'm so grateful to you for that. And here's the next, you know what I mean? Sort of being in that dialogue with folks and acknowledging that's a critical part of their motivation, I think is really important for us to note. So you can read through all five, but those are, those are the high level on the five from her. Be relevant to networks, the other person I'd mentioned, who I'm sure a lot of you know, is Marshall Gans, who's at Harvard and created the snowflake model. Again, we can borrow a lot from politics and advocacy who have traditionally used that tactic. But the truth is, it's just the best way to engage communities of people and get them to be sort of deeply engaged with your purpose and also equipped to share so that they can grow your tiny snowflake into many, many more points. So I think that's worth a read for everyone in this space. Awesome. I think we have time for one more comment question. Karen, do you want to jump in here? Sure. (laughs) You were talking about the analysis of the data, and I feel number crunching is great and sort of looking at, as you said, the past history of this donor's behavior. But I have seen on multiple occasions where somebody who's not rated as your best donor necessarily either comes forward with an amazing planned gift when suddenly you receive a large estate distribution, or they make a leadership size gift when you really didn't even expect them to make a major gift. So I've seen it work both ways. Sometimes all the data you collect on somebody still can be not accurate. So I think you have to look at the data carefully, but yet use other resources to determine what level that person is really capable of giving. I agree with you completely. I honestly think I couldn't be more aligned with you because I think in the tech space, it relates actually to this, what's the goal of your tech? And the thing that I believe is it helping us facilitate more human interaction at scale. Because we don't want actually just a robot that's computing how we did over the last month. We want as much insight as we can get for sure. And then we need to acknowledge, I think, like you were saying, that at the end of the day, all these folks are just people. And so somebody who maybe isn't rated as high on some wealth screener or whatever, but really, really believes in you will surprise you. And someone who has all of the wealth you could ever imagine, but honestly just doesn't care about this cause that much, (laughs) isn't really worth your time. So it really is about them. I think that gets back to kind of deputizing more folks to be in deep conversation, authentic conversation. And I would also really recommend um, an integrated system again for this reason, because you might identify folks who are engaged and haven't donated a large amount recently, but who are engaging every possible way, who, again, open every email or forwarding things or retweeting everything you're doing. They're really engaged. They're with you. And they should be part of your 5%, even if they didn't come out as tops on the wealth screener, because they could surprise you. They might give, or they might know someone who will, and they could be an incredible fundraiser for you out in the world. So I agree with you completely. But what you really want to assess is their identification with you, how rooted they are with you and believe in your cause and want to be with you. And you can kind of be on a journey with them that will be really, really productive, irrespective of what the wealth screener might say. Yeah, I'm just going to double click on that because I think wealth screens are helpful, but should not be the only thing that you're using. And particularly here in New York City, 
it's very difficult to use that as an indication of wealth because very wealthy people can shield their money. So generally speaking, wealth screens will look at things like real estate or if you own a boat or a plane or what have you. But as we know, particularly here in New York City, you buy co-ops. So that's not public information. There are ways to put your money in family foundations and DAFs. So again, having the conversation and the level of engagement is probably a better indicator of whether or not this person is in your 5%. Totally. Based on how people act, we should believe them. Yeah. You know, so if they're acting with you all the time, we should trust that. Hillary, we are at time. This has been so helpful. Where can folks find you online? And I'll make sure to also put your information in the show notes. Yep, definitely. So you can find me at nationbuilder.com backslash Hillary. I'm there. Information should be there as well. I'm also on Instagram at Hillary Doe. And I run a nonprofit based in Detroit called the Scout Institute. So I'm actively among you still in the nonprofit space doing the work. Uh, If you want to check us out, you can explore that scoutinstitute.org. And that's Hillary 1L Doe (laughs) D-O-E. My mom was not a fan of repetition, so we only got 1L. There you go. All right. Well, thanks so much, Hillary. This has been super informative. And I challenge you all to think about your 5% and also your CRM system. (laughs) Thanks so much, everyone. (laughs) 